0: The ancient Israelites were given the privilege of participating in a move from bondage to freedom. God called them out of slavery. He's their deliverer. And he was going to bring them to a land of promise. But they had a journey before they got there. And so there's a whole book that tells us about it. Popularly known as the book of Numbers. But in the original Hebrew, it actually is entitled, as I think you know now, In the Wilderness. That's where they found themselves. No no longer in Egyptian bondage to a cruel taskmaster. No, now free and on their way to their land of promise. But they're in betweeners. They're not there yet. They're on the journey. God said to this people who had known nothing but enslavement. He said, now you must not use your freedom in the direction of license. You must use it in a way that is pleasing to me. And so a loving God said, I will give you guidelines so that when you're in the camp and when you're on the move, you behave now like a people on their way to the land of promise. Don't live like slave people anymore. I'm your master. Follow me. And so the whole book of Numbers is a record of how Israel did in their wilderness wanderings. And the last time we... we We're together, we saw that God instructed them in the very practical area of conflict resolution. He said, if two of you, wilderness wanderers, are not getting along, stop what you're doing and seek to resolve it. In fact, said God, don't even make an offering of worship or sacrifice to me. Get it together with one another, because I'm your dad. You're my kids. It's not pleasing to me. When two kids whom I love don't love one another. And God essentially said, and that kind of interpersonal conflict can infect the whole faith community. So God said, you got to work it out. Now, tonight, there's a text of a most unusual kind, but the theme is this. It's a specific area of conflict, which God said has to be worked out, and it's conflict in a marriage, So now we're going to see early on in Israel's wilderness wanderings, on their way to the land of promise, we're going to see the emphasis God puts on wholeness and healthfulness between parties to a marriage. It's as if God thinks that partnership is so important that if it isn't dealt with and worked out right away, the whole faith community will suffer. So this is what the text tonight addresses, specifically jealousy in a marriage and adultery by one or more partners to the marriage. It is not a pleasant topic tonight, I warn you, but we must deal with the scriptures as God gives it so this is the next passage and it is in numbers chapter 5 uh, beginning in verse 11 we left off at verse 10 last week so we pick up in verse 11 today Uh, numbers chapter 5 beginning in verse 11 bear with me as I go through what I think you'll find to be quite unusual Numbers 5 verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying. Remember Moses was his spokesperson. God said something to Moses. Moses was to communicate it to the people. Speak to the sons of Israel. Say to them. If any man's wife goes astray. And is unfaithful. And a man has intercourse with her. And it's hidden from the eyes of her husband. She's undetected. Although she has defiled herself. And there is no witness against her. She's not been caught in the act. But if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself. Or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself. The man shall bring his wife to the priest. And shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. But he shall not pour oil on it nor put frankincense on it. Because it's a grain offering of jealousy. A grain offering of memorial. A reminder of iniquity. So here's the procedure. If a man was somehow aroused to be jealous, to be suspicious of his wife's fidelity... He was to resolve it by bringing her to the priest, which in essence was to take her, the whole matter, before God, to adjudicate it. He doesn't know if she's guilty or not. He's suspicious. There are various ways to deal with it from a human point of view. God said, do it this way. Bring her to the priest and make an offering of barley, but do not include in it oil or frankincense. Why? Why? Those ingredients which are typically associated with a barley offering in the Old Testament represent sweetness, a sweet savor. But there's nothing sweet about this procedure. Uh, This is the bitterness of evaluation of the morality of a man's wife. So this is not joyous. This is not pleasant. Make the offering on her behalf, says God, but do it without Frankincense and without, oil. in fact, it's a jealousy offering. The offering is designed to bring to the fore the legitimacy of the man's suspicions, and so it's kind of a device to enhance the guilt or innocence of the alleged adulterer. Therefore, don't put sweet things in the offering, is what it says here. Now, verse sixteen. Then the priest shall bring her, the woman, near and have her stand before the Lord. It's not a trial by peers. Have her stand. It's at the tabernacle. The priest acting as God's representative. She's standing before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water. What makes it holy? Maybe the source from which the priest gathered it from perhaps the. Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Maybe because it was placed in one of the vessels used for tabernacle ministry. Took on a character of holiness. So the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel. And he shall take, notice, some of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. It's a mixture. You have the water, which came from the tabernacle. And in it is placed dust, which came from the tabernacle. It's rather unusual, for sure. I'm telling you, these are symbols of the presence of God. You see, the whole matter is going to be decide, decided. It's not trial by fire. It's not trial by jury or by one's peers. God is going to bring out uh, the veracity uh, of the accusation or not. She's going to be determined to be guilty or innocent at the hands of God. And so these elements are a reflection of the holy presence of God. Verse 18, The priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let, her, let the hair of the woman's head go loose. This is not a sign uh, of her culpability and guilt because that's not been determined yet. But it is a sign. Of her submission to the proceedings. She. Wants the truth to be known. It is a sign. Of her yieldedness. To the divinely mandated proceedings. It is a sign. Of the seriousness. With which she is participating. In the proceedings. And the priest is to place. The grain offering of. Memorial in her hands. It's the grain offering. Of jealousy. And. In the hand of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse if she's guilty. So verse 19, the priest shall have her take an oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you've not gone astray into uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, wow, how old-fashioned is the Bible? That is very politically incorrect. But it happens to be biblically ordained. There it is. She will be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. Verse 20. If, however, she has gone astray, being under the authority of her husband, and if you've defiled yourself and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest shall have the woman swear with the oath of the curse. And the priest shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people by the Lord's making your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. Very unusual. I understand. These are the These are physical manifestations which basically indicate she will no longer be able to conceive and have children. That's what's in view. Verse 22, And this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Whoa. Two big words. You see, by saying this, The woman says, I agree to the terms. Whoa. She said, if I'm innocent, I deserve vindication. But if I'm guilty, I deserve the curse. I accept the punishment. Amen and amen. She was not allowed notice any other option. She either says amen or amen or she refuses and walks away. Look. She either slept with another partner and was guilty, or she did not and was innocent. Those are the options. Do you notice she's not allowed the option of saying something like, yeah, I did it, but they were mitigating circumstances. My husband has not loved me as he should. He has not met my needs. He's been distant from me. He's mean. He's away a lot. He has married his business. He has forgotten me. Uh, this smooth-talking guy made himself available to me at my point of vulnerability and susceptibility. And yes, though I've done it, surely you can see the mitigating circumstances. No such thing. No. <clears throat> she's innocent of the allegation or she's guilty. Sin is Sin. There are no mitigating circumstances. Only today we become experts at excuse making. No. Guilty or innocent. That's it. Verse 23, the priest shall then, notice this, write these curses on a scroll and he shall wash them off into the water of bitterness. So the ink with which the curses were inscribed on parchment by the priest The ink was to be rinsed off and into the jar containing the dust from the tabernacle and the holy water from the tabernacle. Because symbolically, the woman must now eat her words or to be more precise, drink her words. That's exactly what's happening. You'll see. Verse 24, he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse so that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. The priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand. He'll wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. The priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And afterward, he'll make the woman drink the water. When he's made her drink the water... Then it shall come about if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness and her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she'll be free and conceive. Children, this is the law of jealousy. When a woman, being under the authority of her husband, goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he's jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord, and the priest shall apply all this law to her. Moreover, the man will be free from guilt, but that woman shall bear her guilt. Wow. It's in the Bible, folks. You can't skip around. You can't leave out the passages that make you uncomfortable. It's God's word. It's holy. Every bit of it. This text raises lots of questions, however, does it not? Here's one that came to my mind as I read it. Is this magic? I mean, so you come up with some concoction, some dust, some water, some this, some that, some ink. She drinks it. Is it like, and then some things happen to her? I mean, is it like magic? No. Why? Because God condemns magic. (laughs) He condemns all this occultic wizardry. No. So then what is it? It's a sovereign God using this procedure. This means to make truth known. He can do anything he wants, but it's not magic. But here's another question that came to mind. Why is it only the woman who's getting beat up? I mean, it takes two to tangle, right? You can't commit adultery with yourself. Where's the guy? We don't know. That's the deal but I can tell you this by reading in other places. We call it Torah. This is the first five books of the Bible. The other places in the Torah say, in the event of uh, adultery, both parties to it, what's the penalty they experience? They're stoned. So I can only uh, imagine that what's implied in the absence of the man is they don't know where he is. But this raises another question. Why is all this focus on the woman? Why doesn't... I mean, what if the woman, what if the wife suspected her husband of being unfaithful? Why is it only the woman? I mean, didn't she have the same recourse as he did? Could I tell you something? No, she did not. Now, the fact that this is going to be hard to swallow shows you and me how far we've drifted from the biblical perspective. I'll tell you why she doesn't have the same recourse that he did. It's because before God, the lines of authority are entirely different. The woman is under the authority of the man and the man is directly answerable to God. It's not that God would condone adultery and unfaithfulness on the part of the man. It's just that God has his way of making the man directly accountable to him. But in this case, the woman is accountable. It's chain of command to the husband as God's provided covering over her. Now, boy, oh boy, even as I say that, I just hear the world laughing their head off. It shows us how far we've drifted from the wisdom of the all-wise God. Nobody is more important than another. No gender is more important than another. No one has more value than another. But God has role differentiation in the home, and he knows best. And today, in this day and age of equality, oh, so-called equality where everyone does the same thing? Come on. Men are supposed to be men. And women are supposed to be women. That's not very profound, is it? It is a different line of authority. That's what it says. But then this whole passage led to this question. Okay, so this is in the Bible. But why don't we do it today? Why don't we do this procedure today? I'll tell you why. This will help you, I think. It helps me. I hope it helps you in studying the Bible. You have to see that there's a difference between biblical practices and biblical principles. Did you know that not all biblical practices are meant to be repeated in every age? They're not. But all biblical principles are. So there are lots of biblical practices which you know yourself, you're not practicing anymore. And you don't... For instance, I'm looking around the room here and I don't see too many women with their heads covered. Why not? It says that in the Bible. Don't get nervous. (laughs) By default... You are distinguishing between biblical practice and biblical principle. That is a biblical practice, which in its cultural time meant something. If a woman came into a worship environment and her head wasn't covered, it would sort of mean, I'm in rebellion and I'm on the prowl for another man. It's a sign of flirtatiousness, for crying out loud. Today, the equivalent would be a woman coming in with, I don't know, some short skirt or some, I don't know, whatever women do to be on the prowl. I, I I don't I don't know what you but it, so, so the the practice doesn't exist in there but the principle the principle is when you go to worship dress conduct yourself in such fashion that you don't call undue attention to yourself fit in so that people could undistractedly make their offering of worship to the father and not be looking at you so much that's kind of the all right. So here you have a biblical practice. It was a practice, a procedure given to ancient Israel thousands of years ago during their wilderness wandering. But it is not to be repeated. But the principle behind it has never changed because the moral, ethical character of God is unchangeable. Now what is the enduring principle then behind this temporary practice? It is this. God does not want partners in a marriage to have partners outside of the marriage. That's the enduring principle. God does not want partners in a marriage to have partners outside the marriage. That is a timeless reflection of the character of God. In fact, he... Wedded us, if you are a Christian, you are married to your heavenly husband and you are his bride. And marriages of a humankind are to reflect it. In the marriage between the Christian and the Christ, the Christ loves the Christian so much, he doesn't want to share that Christian with anybody else. And that's what he wants reflected. In a human marriage. You see? He loves us too much. He doesn't want us committing adultery with idols. Spiritual adultery. Yes, he wants us all for himself. That's how much God loves you and me. Could he be a loving heavenly husband if he shared us freely with anybody else? Come on. And he wants that to be represented, albeit in a smaller way, in the context of of the sanctity of our marriages, which is why it ought to be referred to as holy matrimony, because in fact, it is so sanctified in the eyes of God, he gave us one simple commandment, which if we obeyed it, would put us further down the road in our wilderness wandering than almost anything else. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and it simply says, Thou shalt not... Commit adultery. In fact, in the original Hebrew, it doesn't say it like that. It's only two words in Hebrew. No adultery. Exclamation point. It's one of the commandments. No adultery. That's what God says. But folks, in so many cases in our day to day, this, the seventh commandment, has been grotesquely dismissed. People are prone to think God is really dead wrong about this. I mean, come on. Doesn't he realize that... uh, that uh, having multiple partners outside of marriage comes naturally doesn 't realize monogamy is not natural doesn 't really realize any any healthy male has to wander around and have a number of partners oh, so he may love his wife, but he 's got to have partners doesn 't i mean God just God you know too consenting, what harm are they doing you know God is wrong about this that 's the that's pretty much... I mean, this kind of thing, you know, a multiple part... It's, it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It relieves stress. Uh, it's an unavoidable thing. You remember the Seventh Commandment? No, no, no. Margaret Mead, famous American anthropologist, deceased at present, uh, studied various cultures, wrote a book about it, in which she sought to prove that the most natural expression of sexuality was not monogamy, but is, in fact, casual sex with a number of partners. Margaret Mead. In fact, she clearly stated in one of her books, she stated that her underlying goal in her studies was to challenge the narrowness of the Christian position on the subject. She said, and I quote, At the present time, we live in a period of transition, still unfortunately believing that only one standard can be the right one. She's referring to God's standard of one man, one woman in one marriage. Margaret Mead said, bunk. Seventh commandment, out to lunch. God got it wrong. Margaret Mead thinks the seventh commandment is wrong and that monogamy is not natural and that casual sex is better. No. God is not wrong about this. In fact, he knows that violation of this singular commandment has never led to any good thing. In fact, it has produced broken homes, ruined lives, shame, disease, And even death. Infidelity. By God's people. People on their wilderness journey. Infidelity. On the part of God's people. Is not secret from him. There is no such thing as a secret sin. It is not private. And it is not merely between two consenting adults. In fact... It has a pervasive effect on the entire community of faith. That's why God wrote what he did in this particular text. He said, no adultery. The ceremony which we have read about, which is so strange. Notice, it was meant to be strange. Odd. Otherworldly. Horrifying. It was an attention getter. It was meant to stir up the onlookers because it was public, folks. And it was meant to stir up all the onlookers with regard to the seriousness of the matter of infidelity and even behavior giving rise to suspicion of infidelity. Avoid it like the plague. The ceremony was public here. It made the entire community aware of the evil of adultery and of the seriousness of this so-called secret sin, the existence of the ceremony was itself an incentive to every onlooker to pursue the faithfulness God requires in marriage. You see, it's his idea, marriage. We didn't come up with it. We never would have arrived at it. God came up with this idea. He came up with the idea of one woman bound together with one man in a covenant, not contract, covenant bond. That is to have no end. And the seventh commandment, in essence, says don't tear apart what God has put together. That's what he says. God sanctified marriage. He set it apart as a special relationship between husband and wife. And so he says this in Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 4. Perhaps you're familiar with this. Let marriage be held in honor among all. It is ceasing to be. Do you know that? It's ceasing to be held in honor. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That's what it says. So you see, folks, God didn't merely create marriage. He did more. He sanctified it. In other words, he set it apart. He drew lines around the marital bed. Adultery crosses God-given lines. Now, why did God, you may wonder, (laughs) restrict sex to marriage? Is he down on sex? Does he not see its value? Yeah, he sees its value, It's his idea. The lines, the very lines he drew around sexual relations, those very lines reflect the value he places on it. You see what you value, you protect. Society is preoccupied today with sex, but it doesn't value it. You see, if you value something, you restrict its use. But today, if it feels good, do it. No restrictions. Sex is actually devalued by those who participated outside of God's bounds. Do you know, before we were Christians, this is one of the cool things about being a Christian. Before we were Christians, we had no idea what God thought. We do not have the mind of Christ. One of the things you get saved from is moral stupidity. You You get God's... M I, his M I Q, his moral intelligence quotient when you get saved. You get the mind of Christ. And that's a good thing. <clears throat> because we need his mind on sex and on marriage, because we would come up with all kinds of uh, other things that don't reflect the wisdom of Almighty God. Now we have the thoughts of Christ. And God has made very clear in the scriptures what he thinks about marriage and sex. He thinks it is wrong to have a sexual relationship outside of marriage. That is the mind of Christ. Either before or during sexual relations outside of marriage. The mind of Christ says, no, don't do it. So what that means is you and I have to work really, 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 really hard at shedding the prevailing worldly, societal, cultural view of sex and marriage. Because we're inundated by the thinking of the world, which is absolutely opposed to the thinking of Almighty God. For instance, a Newsweek poll way back in 1996 found that of the five shortcomings a politician may be guilty of, including taking drugs, uh, cheating on income taxes, an affair was the least likely to cause people to vote against that person. Ain't that something? There's an all-out assault on the seventh commandment. It is scorned, it is ridiculed, it is belittled, it is considered outdated, archaic, and old-fashioned. In fact, we hear so much about two consenting adults that if we're not careful, we're going to begin to consent with that foolish thinking and accept it as being natural and normative, and it is not. Our father cares how he lived. He said, live this way, no adultery. Do not be flexible about the seventh commandment. God is absolutely inflexible about it. He wants 100% sexual purity. The commandment is clear. Two simple words from God. No adultery. And I got to tell you something, folks. We would have absolutely no clue what's right or wrong (laughs) apart from God's revelation of what's right and what's wrong. You can be well-educated, you can have a high IQ, and yet you can still be dead wrong about what is right from God's point of view. For instance, there's a lady named Louise Salvo who wrote a book called Adultery. And in it she said, here's a quote, Perhaps adultery makes evolutionary sense. Perhaps it is a pesky way our species guarantees its survival. Another very intelligent man named David Barash co-authored a book with his equally intelligent wife named Dr. Judith Eve Lipton. The book is called The Myth of Monogamy. He said, when it comes to human beings, there's absolutely no question about monogamy being natural. It's not. That's what a real smart, educated guy said. But I think father knows best. And Father said, no adultery. That's what he said. A Gallup poll of 1,025 adults taken in 2008 indicated that 54% of Americans know someone who has an unfaithful spouse. 54%. That's more than twice the rate of a similar study done, it was a Harris poll done In 1964, which indicated 24% of those polled knew someone who had an unfaithful spouse. So from 1964, 24%, 2008, 54%, now everyone's doing it. No, they're not. No, they shouldn't. Statistics do not determine what is morally correct. God dictates what is morally correct. He said, no adult. And I give you these statistics, but I got to tell you, let me just give you God's numbers. Here they are. One man joined to one woman and the two becoming one flesh. Those are God's numbers. It doesn't change in time. Don't cave in. You have the mind of Christ. I'm not talking to the world out there. Why? I'm only talking to those in the camp. We're in the wilderness journey. And God's only talking to those in the camp. He's saying, I freed you. Now let me tell you how to live. Live this way. That's what he said. Are you a Christian? You, if you are, are now free to live life your Savior's way. You now have the mind of Christ. Please, let your mind be informed by his mind, his will, once hidden from you, now revealed to you and to me. Do things our Father's way. Why? He loves you. He wants what's best for you. And he knows what's best for you. As part of the procedure, which we, the unusual procedure we just looked at in this text, this suspected adulteress, this lady, had to drink from a bitter cup in which was dust mixed with water. Then the priest had her assent to this oath. If you are guilty, the Lord make you a curse. This procedure in the Old Testament makes even more meaningful, I think you will agree, the words of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament Uh, Particularly to the Galatians when he said to them, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. Undoubtedly, there are some here who have violated the seventh commandment. Come back. But I don't mean just here. I mean to the Lord. Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. You don't have to drink of the cup of bitterness bitterness, as did that lady in the Old Testament. For the Lord Jesus drank of the cup for you. Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, thy will, not mine, be done. And the Father said, drink a cup of bitterness for all of these people, ones who have violated the seventh commandment and others as well. I'm a little burdened by the text which we spoke of tonight. It's not uplifting and it doesn't delight the heart necessarily. It could have the tendency of cause some of you here to leave carrying through your wilderness journey an unnecessary burden of guilt. When you can say, Lord Jesus, forgive my sin. Carry the load of my guilt on your shoulders. You who were pierced through for me. You who participated in the cup of judgment and crucifixion and humiliation for me. You who satisfied the righteous requirements of the law For me, a lawbreaker, Lord Jesus, thank you for drinking of the cup of judgment for me. I accept what you did for me. I accept you as my Savior, you who drank the cup of crucifixion in my stead, in my place, as my substitute. You saved me from that deserved fate you are my savior today come into my heart lord jesus i must be cleansed cleanse me by your shed blood though my sins are as scarlet you could make them white as snow through your scarlet shed blood oh god come into my life so that i could go forth from this place with head up and shoulders back just As if I had not sinned. Free to continue the journey. To my place of promise as well. But from this day forward. Sinning no more. Sinning no more. Under the reins. No longer of a cruel taskmaster. But of a benevolent savior. Who knows what's best. Free now. To do things his way. Free now. To navigate the turbulent waters of this wilderness journey. With you as my guide. Until the time when I follow you straight into the land of promise. The place of promise. Heaven. When the battle I have between my way and your way is no longer there. Surrendered entirely to your way. Until that happens, Lord Jesus. Strengthen me in the wilderness journey to do things your way. Strengthen me to extricate from my mind the world's reasoning which sounds so good and makes so much sense, but which is so contrary to your commandments and guidelines. You are all-knowing. You who have no beginning nor any end, you who have never made any mistakes, you have nothing to be sorry for. You who have committed no sin, you have nothing to apologize for. You who lack no information, you who need nobody else's counsel or guidance. You, your mind—that's what I am to follow, not worldly ways. Thank you for freeing me from it, so as to walk in your ways.